Well, this Sunday, we're going to be launching a new mini-series that's going to be called uh, The Solas, and it's going to be the next three weeks, and we're going to be looking at the five solas, but we're really going to be focusing in on three of them, uh, of the Reformation. You know, this past Tuesday, we celebrated 500 years of the Reformation, the, the fateful day where this young German monk nailed 95 theses on a door in a small German town called Wittenberg. And that day is memorialized as the day that essentially launched and erupted this massive movement that changed not only the church, but it changed Western culture. And we were celebrating that on Halloween this past Tuesday. It's interesting to me that Reformation Day and Halloween are the same day. You know, growing up, I hadn't, if you were to tell me like Reformation, I had no idea what that was. I knew very little about Martin Luther or the Reformation or any of these things. When I was growing up, I was focused on one thing and one thing alone. And can you guess what that was? Candy. Exactly. And I, like I was on a mission for candy, guys. I don't know if you were similar. You know, a, a lot of people for Halloween, they're like really excited about dressing up. They have these elaborate costumes. They got wings. They got swords and all these different things. And I like to dress up. But my costume was submitted to my, my total dedication to accomplish and to achieve as much candy as possible. So my costume, had to, I had to be swift, I had to be agile, because I had to hit all the houses. So I didn't want huge wings or something to slow me down. I needed to be able to move. You know, and I got together with my posse, my candy posse. We'd get together. We'd plan out weeks before. We knew where we were going. We knew the best houses to hit. And here's the thing that you know when you're growing up. If you were serious about candy, you never use one of those little pumpkin buckets. That's for like little kids, right? You go pillowcases. Notice I said pillowcases, two, at least, maybe reserve. Because think about it as a kid, right? You, you've probably experienced this, you felt this, like they're giving out free candy all night long. Like these things cost a dollar. I have like $3 to my name and I can get hundreds, I mean, I'm getting hundreds of dollars. That's what's happening and I'm gonna eat it all. And this was my goal. I mean, this, Halloween was everything. If you've been watching Stranger Things season two, I think it's episode two, they go trick or treating. They're very similar. I mean, they had pillowcases, they had the, the whole trajectory. They had these big, huge Ghostbuster suits. I wouldn't have worn that, it slows them down. But this was my childhood. I'm sure this was your childhood too. So like Reformation Day and Halloween, like, no, Halloween, that's it. And actually, during the time of Luther in 1517, they would have been celebrating Halloween. Now, it would have looked a little bit different, but there would have been parties. There would have been people dressing up, maybe as saints or angels or demons or devils. It was celebrated, and, and the city would have been alive. It would have been vibrant. This small little town, you know, when these festivals happen and when these events happen, these towns would come alive. And so you wonder, you know, why did Martin Luther nail this discussion, it's what the 95 Theses were, it was essentially a discussion board. He essentially nailed this sheet of 95 things that he wants to have a conversation about on this church. It's like the news feed of the village. And he puts it up there, and he puts it up there during Halloween, why? Probably, we don't know for sure, but probably because he's thinking, this is the best time to get a conversation around these things. Because he's been dealing with all of these questions about faith and the gospel versus religion. And, and are, are we really living out the, the true Christian faith and gospel? And so he puts these things up and he wants to have a, com a conversation. And that moment and that event changed history. It changed history, not simply for the church, but for 
Western culture as well. So I think the first question that we want to ask as we launch this series is, why was the Reformation so significant? Because we don't maybe feel and understand all of it now, or maybe taught it from a historical perspective, but what did it really do? Well, first off, the Reformation was progress in culture in a lot of different ways. One of the things that it did is it paved the way for critical thinking. So Martin Luther was bold and courageous enough to question the status quo. This did not happen during this time. You submitted to the Roman Catholic Church and what they said. You do not question. Very few people were even capable of questioning because they weren't educated enough to to have a debate or to really know what's even being taught or said. But Martin Luther, who was a monk and a professor, he understood. He was in the inner circle, if you will, and he challenged the status quo. And he said, there's something off here about what we're holding to and claiming is the Christian faith and how that's being worked out. And what's happened now since then is that the Reformation in Western culture has created this culture of reformation, of reforming, of asking questions, of critical thinking, of challenging the status quo. It's been very evident in the church. You know, in the 17 and 1800s, there was a conviction that was reached by many Christian leaders as they looked at the landscape and they said, wait a second, why are we tolerating slavery? This is absolutely evil. And them, alongside others who were questioning the status quo as well, because there's a, a value of critical thinking in Western culture, said, we're going to abolish this. We need to be done with this. This is horrible. Also, in the 16th and 17th centuries, there was Christian scientists that said, I don't really know if what we're holding to as science is in fact true. And so they really pushed against the status quo and had huge developments in natural science. There's a value in Western culture that started from the Reformation. But it's not just that. Also, it paved way for equality for all. Whether you're, regardless of your gender or your race or your profession, that traces back to the Reformation. This value in Western culture that we are equal. We are deserving of equal dignity and we are equal before God. Because Luther and the other reformers were saying that there's no hierarchy of people. Just because you have this certain job doesn't make you more significant or more valuable to God than me. Just because you are of this certain position does not elevate you in the eyes of God. There's this idea of the priesthood of all believers that we see in Scripture, that we are equal. And this has brought huge change in Western culture. But it's also paved the way for this value of education, right? We have a high value in the Western world for education. And we believe that everybody has the right to receive good education. But that wasn't always the case, right? During this time, most people were illiterate. And when they would go to church, it would be in Latin. They had no idea what was being said. They had no idea what was being taught. They weren't educated enough to read it. They didn't have a Bible in their language. None of these things were true. So they, it was purposeful to keep them at a different level than the clergy and the nobles who had access to all knowledge. And the Reformation changed that. It brought worship services in the modern language. It brought the Bible in modern languages so that information and knowledge could be given to all, because all are deserving of it. That goes to the Reformation. And then lastly, it also has led to prosperity. If you think about the Reformation and the countries that had a major effect on, Germany, Switzerland, France, England, Scotland, kind of the main five, and there's, it touched others, but there are some that it significantly did not touch and did not reach, Spain, Portugal, 
it had a hard time having any effect on the Roman Catholic stronghold of Italy. For the past 500 years and even today, the most prosperous nations in Europe are what? Germany, Switzerland, France, England, Scotland. Because the Reformation has brought this equality, this work ethic, this critical thinking, all of these different things that has led to prosperity as well. See, the Reformation was progress, but the Reformers themselves weren't thinking about progressing culture. That wasn't why the Reformation was started. They, they were actually focused on a regression. It brought about a regression as well because they were sitting there thinking, Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all these other leaders, they were saying, when we look at the church, this is not the true Christian faith. And so they said, we need to regress. We need to go back to what it means to be a follower of Christ, to the true gospel. And they had these five battle cries of the Reformation. So they're called the five solas. It's sola scriptura, which is scripture only, sola fide, faith only, sola gratia, grace only, sola Christus, Christ only, and soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone. You know, we speak about these things, we talk about these things, you maybe heard these things preached, you maybe discussed them in your community group, maybe you've had conversations on these things, maybe not as formal language, that would be a little weird. If you're in a community group or at coffee with a friend, you're like, let's talk about sola fide, you know, like... You're probably, that's probably not happening. If you do, you're on another level. Congratulations. But we take these things for granted, right? We, we believe these internally. We maybe don't verbalize them. They're taught, but it wasn't always like this. See, these things had been lost in the dark ages. And by God's grace alone, sola gratia, God ignited in the heart of Martin Luther and others as well. That this was wrong. This was off what was being promoted. And here's what was being held to. And they said, we need to regress from human tradition, that somehow human tradition can either be on an equal playing field or sometimes even trump scripture. No, it's scripture alone. We need to, to move away from the, the worshiping and the elevating of saints and human beings as if they're worthy of worship. No, God is only worthy of worship. It's to him alone. We need to, to move away from and to regress away from the idea that somehow our good works and our ability is in the equation of salvation. No, it's faith alone. It's Christ alone. We need to move away from this idea that if you're clergy or you're noble, somehow you're more significant and you're more valuable to God than a peasant or than a layperson or the person sitting in the pews. So we're going to regress and move away from these things because this is not the gospel. And it's important to say this because depending on how you grew up and what culture you grew up in, Martin Luther was either a hero or he was a maniac, right? If you grew up in a Protestant culture, he was a hero. And if you grew up in a Roman Catholic culture, he was a maniac. He was a, a, a bad individual. It's important to say this in the very beginning is that the Reformation is not a rejection of Catholicism per se, that's what we read in the history books. That's what it looks like. It's just a church fighting against each other, and it's just huge division, and now it's Protestants versus Catholics, and that's what the Reformation is about. Actually, Martin Luther didn't want to leave the Roman Catholic Church. He was a monk. He wanted to reform it. He wanted to have conversation. He wanted to see them work through it together, and then he was excommunicated. Now, there is obviously a division there that took place, but it took place over the core central issue of the Reformation, which is not Protestant versus Catholic, it's religion versus the gospel. It is Jesus plus works equals salvation versus Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. 
That's the disagreement. That's what the Reformation is about. And tonight, we're going to be looking at sola fide, faith alone. And we're going to be asking the question, you know, why is it important to really understand and to believe and to hold fast to faith alone? And what actually led to this being, needing to be reclaimed? Right? You may be sitting here and thinking, yeah, duh, faith alone. But what was happening in that time that led to this being lost? So during this time uh, of Martin Luther, the Roman Catholic Church um, taught this is the way to salvation. He said, listen, when you're a child, you're baptized. Almost every believer during this time in any church was baptized. And they said, listen, when you're baptized, you're saved. Okay, so you're saved through baptism. But here's the problem. When you're saved through baptism, you're going to commit mortal sins. And mortal sins are going to cause you to tarnish or to lose your salvation. And mortal sins are any sins that are done deliberately. So they're not accidental. So here, here are some mortal sins. Idolatry, theft, murder. But, and this is bad news for everybody, there are much more baseline sins as well. Let me read to you a few of the mortal sins, okay? Here's a few of them. Breaking an oath, skipping church, hating another person, alcohol or drug abuse, sex before marriage, pornography, cheating, lying, envy, doubting your faith, indifference towards another person's suffering, lack of generosity to somebody, and the list goes on, but you get the point, right? You're like, you're hearing that, you're like, whoa, I've already, you know, committed like 10 of those this week. The problem that they had was this, is that it says you're saved by baptism, but then you're going to commit mortal sins, which everybody does, and so what do you do? And they said, you need to have penance. You need to go to penance. You need to accomplish penance, which is three stages. First, you need to be sorrowful. You need to have remorse for your sin. Then you need to go to confession to a priest, once a year at least. And then you need an absolution. You need to be absolved of your guilt from the priest. You're like, okay, that's pretty simple. Say through baptism, I ruined it in sin, and then I go to the priest. Here's the, uh, the next problem. They told you that you could do all these things, but that only deals with your guilt. So you go to the priest, you confess, you get absolved, you're really sorry, but that's only your guilt. It doesn't deal with your punishment. Because it was told that you needed to pay the punishment, the consequences of your sin. And so they said that there's a satisfaction of works that you have to accomplish now. So what you need to do is you need to work really hard at being good. You need to do a lot of good things because the scales are not in your favor at the moment. You're down here. You need to get it up here. And so you need to work, work really hard. And here's the problem. You're thinking to yourself, as we always do, if, you've, if you believe that, if you struggle with religiosity and legalism, you know, like, okay, where am I at here? Like, you never know, right? Like, am I at 50-50 or am I... And typically, if you're honest with yourself, you're like, man, I'm, I have a long way to go. So then comes the practice of indulgences. And this is the last step. I said, listen, we know that you're probably not going to be able to satisfy the requirement of works. And so you can get indulgences. There's two ways you can get them. One, you can earn them by doing some religious action, like during the time of the Crusades, joining the Crusades, or two, for most people, you can purchase them for a significant amount of money. And here's what they would do. They would lessen your time in purgatory because purgatory was promoted as the place that you go when you die to get clean and to pay for all of the, the sins that you've committed that you haven't done enough good works for so that you could one day then be 
with God in heaven. And so what you can imagine happened, right? People are buying all these indulgences for themselves, but you could also buy them for loved ones. So they're thinking about their friends or their grandparents or family members that have passed away, and they're like, okay, well, I need to buy some for them because they're there right now, and I want to lessen their sentence. As For some reason, buying this is going to do that, so I'm going to do it. So here's what it was in Luther's time to get a, a full picture. Baptism plus your sin plus penance plus good works plus indulgences equals salvation. It's very complicated. And Luther's seeing all of this and he's processing all of this and he's saying, this isn't the gospel. This is dangerous. This is wrong. And he's looking around and he's seeing what religion produces and he's disgusted by it. He's actually spending most of his time studying the book of Romans, which has led to his awakening. And then he's observing what religion produces and, and he's recognizing this is not only dangerous, it is destructive. He goes to Rome and here's what it says. He says, a city which had greeted as holy, right? This is the holy city of Rome. Can you imagine what a small monk from Germany is thinking as he goes there? He's so excited. He says, it was a sink of iniquity. Its very priests were openly infidel and scoffed at the services they performed. The papal courtiers were men of the most shameless lives and he accustomed to repeat the Italian proverb, if there is a hell, Rome is built over it. He goes to Rome expecting to see this glorious city where religion produces all of these good works and all of these great things happening. And he sees priests that are mocking the services that they're performing and they don't even really believe. And he's seeing all these people doing whatever they want. And he's saying, this is hell on earth. And this is coupled with him reading Romans and he's saying, this is not right. This is not the Christian faith. This is not the gospel. And he's sitting down and he's reading this passage tonight, Romans 1. 16 and 17, it says this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, verse 17 haunted Luther in his life. He wrote about it, and he said verse 17 specifically haunted him. Here's what he said. He said, I, I ragged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importantly upon Paul in Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Because verse 17 is talking about righteousness. And so here's how he viewed it, right? Maybe you felt this. Maybe you've viewed it this way. He's saying, am I doing enough? I want to be righteous, I have faith, and I want to be righteous, and I want to be in a relationship with God, and I want to be forgiven, and I want all of the blessings, and I want all of this stuff, and am I doing good enough? Am I religious enough? Are the scales in my favor? I'm not really sure. He was haunted by verse 17, and it makes a lot of sense. Here's why he was haunted by it. Because verse 18 is terrifying. Here's what verse 18 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's reading verse 18 and he's like, wait a second, okay. God is going to pour out his wrath on all unrighteousness and all ungodliness and any suppression of truth. And he's reading verse 17 and he's saying, am I righteous enough? Am I religious enough? Am I doing enough? Am I devout enough? 
You see, if you've ever asked this question before, why is salvation and forgiveness necessary? Like, why do I need it? Verse 18 is very clear. Verse 18 tells you that God is going to pour his wrath out on ungodliness and unrighteousness. And you're like, okay, well, why? Well, if God is perfect and he's holy, that he cannot mix with anything that's imperfect and unholy. Can't mix. If imperfection and perfection come together and make something new, it is not going to be perfect anymore. It's going to be imperfect. And so God actually, the right response of God is to pour out his wrath upon anything that is unholy, to separate himself from it, to remove it from his presence and character and nature because it will, in fact, tarnish and destroy him. It's the same thing that happens when you open the refrigerator and, and you take the milk out. And if you're a savage like me, you just open the top and you drink it. Have you ever done this before where you do that and you take a swig and you're a few days late? The drink by date has passed. And what do you do? You run to the sink and you spit it out because you don't want to drink cottage cheese. You don't. Is that gross? Is that too much? But the drink by date is terrifying. I actually don't drink milk even if it's like six days before it. Like I'm just too terrified by it now because it is completely flawed. And what happens is when you taste it, you want to remove it. See, a perfect God cannot stomach, cannot drink anything that is imperfect. He cannot even be around it because it will cause him to spit it out. It cannot tarnish his character and who he is. And you think to yourself, okay, I I get that. That makes logical sense. I understand that, Carter. But listen, God is loving. So can't he just sweep my sin under the rug? Can't he just forget about it? Can't he just look at me and say, "I, I know he or she's trying. They're trying really hard. And so God's going to give me a gold star for trying. See, here's the problem, though. God is loving, but he's perfectly loving. Not like our love. Our love is imperfect. And so his love is full of wisdom, his love is full of truth, and his love is full of justice. And a love that is full of justice cannot ignore the drink by date. Cannot ignore it. When the milk is spoiled, it's spoiled, and you can't just pretend that it's not. There's another reformer. Francis Turretin that says this, he's from Geneva, Switzerland. He said, when the mind is thoroughly terrified with the consciousness of sin and a sense of God's wrath, what is that thing on account of which he may be acquitted before God and be reckoned a righteous person? What is it that will enable you to come to God's presence when you recognize that God is going to pour his wrath out on unrighteousness? Is it righteousness inhering in us and inchoate holiness? Is it that we have it and we can produce it and we can earn it or... Is it a righteousness and obedience of Christ alone imputed to us? You see, Luther understood that he needs salvation. His whole life he knew this. He knew he needs forgiveness and he needs God's grace and he needs to be cleansed of his sin. He understood that he is imperfect and God is perfect and they can't mix. And he thought for so long that the answer was religion. It was faith plus religion. It was faith plus works. And somehow that was going to get him to God because the scales would be a little bit in his favor and God would be okay with that. And then he reads Romans 1, 16 and 17. And he realizes that that doesn't work. And God has actually made a way for people like us, spoiled milk, to not be poured down the drain, to be accepted. Look what's jumping out of this text that we have tonight. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for, every, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What's the key word in this passage? What is it? Faith, right? It's all over this. It's belief. It's faith. And this is the moment that Luther had his awakening that led to the Western culture and the church itself being changed forever. Here's what he wrote about this. He said, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. It's not earned. It's not through religion. It's simply by faith. The righteousness of God is activated in our lives, is given to us, is imputed to us by faith in what Christ has done, not what we can do or what we did do or what we're going to do. And it causes you to recognize and to understand that God who is perfect cannot mix with imperfection. And so what God did is he made a way. And what did he do? Perfection came here and he took the place of imperfection. He took the wrath and the consequences of imperfection and he paid for it. And now he offers it to us imperfect people so that we might be made holy. We might be made righteous, not because we've done anything, because Christ has done it for us. And this gospel, this simple gospel that we just sang about caused Luther to nail those 95 theses on that door. And we're here today celebrating faith alone because the gospel is simple. Luther used an analogy, actually, about the gospel between a wealthy king. He said, imagine a wealthy king, and this king is Jesus, and then you have a debt-ridden prostitute. And guess who that is? That's us. And the debt-ridden prostitute has no capability to make herself a queen. There's no way. She has nothing to offer, and everything that she has to offer has been tarnished. She can never be queen on her own. No matter how hard she tries, no matter how hard she wants to be queen, she will never be queen. And yet the king, who is wealthy, loves her. And the king makes a vow to her, and he says this, I want to be in relationship with you. I'm going to commit myself to you. I'm actually going to take all of your debts that you owe. I'm going to pay for them. You can now come into my kingdom, and you can have everything. All the wealth, all the status that is mine is now yours, and you're a queen. You're no longer a prostitute. That's the gospel, right? That Christ, our king, laid his life down, paid the penalty for our sin, took our debts away, and says, I'm going to make a vow to you. Do you want to be in relationship with me? Do you believe in me in faith? You have access to everything. And he calls us what? Sons and daughters. We can never make ourselves that, but he gives us that name. You know, we speak of this often. We say, you know, the gospel should change everything in your life. It should transform your life. It should change how you think and how you act and how you behave, what you do with your time and your talent and your treasure, how you view your work and your relationships and what you view your life mission as. It should make you bold like Luther, willing to, to kind of stand up against the status quo and to stand for truth. It should enable you not to be ashamed of the gospel as the beginning of Romans 1.16 says because why would we be ashamed of the greatest gift ever? Why would we be ashamed of it? It should change everything, but salvation by faith alone, really believing that should generate change in you as well. It's an aspect, a core aspect of what the Christian gospel is, and I think it should change you in three ways. There's more, but focus on three. The first one is this, joy. 
If you believe this, that it is faith alone that you are saved, it is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. It is not your works. You cannot earn it. It should produce joy in you because you are loved and forgiven and accepted by God. You have been accepted and offered and, and brought into his kingdom and said, your name has been changed, your identity has been changed, and you've been given everything, and you cannot lose your salvation regardless of what you do or what you don't do. It should bring joy into your life. And it should bring freedom. The second thing is it should bring freedom. You know, for a long time before the Reformation, Christians were trapped in religion. They thought all the time that they were, they were losing their salvation. They were gaining it and losing it and gaining it and losing it. They were not free. And sola fide brought freedom. It brought freedom. But here's the reality. If you're honest we all fall prey to religion, every one of us in this room. There, there are modern day indulgences and penance. Tell me if you've ever had this mentality. You kind of look at your life, you think about what you're doing or what you're not doing. You're, you're judging all that. Then you're thinking about your relationship with God and you know how you're supposed to live and you're, you're balancing all these things and you realize, I got a lot of issues. Like, I'm failing in a lot of ways here. You ever feel that? And then here's what happens. You think to yourself, you know what? I need to go to church. I haven't been to church in a while. I need to go to church. I need to do some good. I need to give back. I need to read my Bible. You know, I, I, I got to read my Bible. So you get the Bible, you open it up, you just like let the pages fall and you read Judges. You're like, ah, okay, I'm going to read something else. You think, I need to pray. Like, I need to pray. I think I need to pray. I need to meditate. I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to. You ever fall into that mentality? These are modern day indulgences, right? Modern day penance. We recognize that the righteousness department, we're failing. The scales are probably not in our favor. And so what we think is, man, I need to do some things to kind of level it out here. I need to do some things to get back in God's favor so he recognizes that I'm trying hard because I haven't been. I need to fix this. That's religion, and the gospel says it doesn't work. That's not how the God operates. It's not God's economy. The, faith, the scales are fixed in your favor no matter what you do or what you don't do because Christ has done all of your earning. You can't earn anything else. You're free, so you can relax. Like You can relax. And what that happens, when you have a mentality of freedom, here's how you think about things. You think, you know what, I want to go to church. I really want to go to church and worship with God's people. I really want to give, and I really want to, to serve because God has given me so much. I want to read my Bible because I'm excited about hearing truth that God is going to speak over me and reveal to me. It's going to have impacts on my life. I want to pray because I know God cares. I know he's listening. Man, life is moving so fast in my life. I want to meditate and just remind myself of God's promises. You see, sola fide, when you really believe faith alone, it changes your mentality from I need to to I want to. That's a difference. And then lastly, it should produce love in you. You know, some people will say this. If you focus too much on faith alone, it's going to produce licentiousness. Right? If it's faith alone, here's what's going to happen. You've got to be careful with that. Don't say too much faith alone because if you say faith alone, people are going to be like, okay, cool. Faith alone, now I can do what I want. You ever think that? You ever struggle with that? It's like, it's like as if faith is somehow fire insurance, you know, like faith alone, no hell, that's good. Now I can live however I want. 
Sometimes we, we think that, right? I want to tell you the truth. It is faith alone. You can do whatever you want. Because you cannot earn and you cannot lose your salvation. It is faith alone. It is not dependent upon your works. However, faith is the root. But what is always produced is fruit. Always. It is always produced. And that fruit is a fruit of love. James says this. He says in his book in the New Testament, he says, faith without works is dead. And a lot of people are saying, see, it's faith plus works. No, that's not what he's saying. It is faith alone, but what happens when you really believe in the gospel and when you recognize that it is by faith alone, what naturally is produced in your life? Good works, love. Jesus has asked this question, and he said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God. And he's only asked for one commandment, but he gives two. And he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he say that? Because if you love God, if you have faith in God and you know who God is, what is always produced is love of neighbor. It will be produced in your life. And so it is faith alone. And faith alone should produce joy in your life and freedom and love. It should change you. And we should be so thankful that this is the gospel, that religion does not do the trick. Should be so thankful. Here's my prayer. My prayer for those of you here that, that believe in faith alone, you've been holding fast to this, so that you would treasure that, that you would cherish it, and that you would begin to ask yourself, man, am I seeing joy and freedom and love produced in my life? Because sola fide should produce that. And for those of you here that are, are still captivated by religion and you're still struggling with that, or maybe you're searching out God, my prayer for you tonight is that you would experience sola gratia, grace alone that you would experience the love of God who loves you just as you are, no matter what you've done or what you will do. He is here with you in your doubts and your questions, and he is walking alongside of you. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would do this, that he would nail the 95 theses of sola fide to your mind and to your heart tonight, because it is the greatest gift in the world to understand that by faith alone, we are accepted and forgiven by God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this gift of grace that you've given us. We can't begin to fathom that you operate in such a way. We can't begin to say thank you. But Lord, we want to honor you. We want to praise you. Lord, we ask that you would give us joy. We ask that you would give us freedom that we would want to sing, we would want to praise, we would want to live for you. And God, we pray that you would give us love, love for you and love for others, that we would be a church that says it is by faith alone and that they would see the joy and the freedom and the love that is produced from that. Lord, we thank you again for your faithfulness in history and we celebrate that tonight. Holy Spirit, would you remind us again of the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.